from Psalm 119. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You've appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Key verse for this day comes from 2 Timothy, and you can either take out one of these little things and make sure it's turned off. You know how to do that? You just hit that little button that looks like a horn and it turns off. And so it, it didn't work. But that idea and philosophy still continues. And some of it's good. Why do we trust schools that only allow one, especially colleges and universities, that only one, allow one opinion and that's not theirs? That's not a university. It's indoctrination. Why do we trust government that we see is so wicked and horrible? Well, we don't. We don't have to trust them. We do trust and yet verify. And the reason we don't trust them is the fifth commandment and what the confessions tell us about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, which has something to do with how you re relate to your parents and honor them even when sometimes they're not honorable. But even deeper, it has to do with all authority. From the policeman who pulls you over because you were doing 60 and a 55, and how do you treat that policeman? To everything that happens in life, we're called to honor. And we learned that from the creeds. That is what it is. This, that's how we learn how to live in this world. But there is one institution that is far different than any other institution, and that's the church. Now, let me help you with some vocabulary that I use. When I talk about a local body, I call it a congregation. When I talk about a group of congregations, I call them a denomination. But when I use the word church, I mean the church as a whole. Around the world, whatever it may be. And this church, though it's fallible and it is prone to error, as you can see when you look at it in our day and age, has been planned by God from before creation and, has been built, and he is building it since creation. It is the bride of his son. And he is working to make it blameless and pure and spotless. And throughout all the times of error. And all the times of its fallacies. And all the times of its weaknesses. He's still using that to create that which he has planned. And make it what it is called to be. He works through those errors. As I talked about with the Nicene Creed. He uses its fallacies. But he also protects it 
and provides for it in, its, in his faithfulness to be faithful. And this is how he does it. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. It says that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles. That's on the foundation of the Old Testament and New Testament. That they're not in contradiction to one another. They don't oppose one another. But they are one book. And Christ is a chief cornerstone. He gives the direction. He holds it together. I come from Pennsylvania. You know the motto of Pennsylvania? Oh, they didn't teach you much, did they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, the heart of it all. See, even for people from Pennsylvania know what Ohio's motto. The Keystone State. Why? Out of the 13 colonies that were bu being built up into an arch, it was Pennsylvania that was the block that was stuck at the apex of the arch that kept the whole arch together. That's what a keystone is. Set on top, it keeps the whole thing together. That's the church. Christ at the top, keeping it by his own pressure altogether. That's one, the word. But then there's also another, the Holy Spirit. And, John, and Jesus, when he was uh, at the upper room, preparing his disciples, talked about the Holy Spirit. John 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It is the Spirit who testifies about Jesus. Drop down the 16th chapter at verse 7 to 10, and you see... Uh, that, or, yeah, 7 to 10, he says, when the Spirit comes, first, uh, excuse me, 13. Nope, let's go back. I knew it was in my Bible this morning, I saw it. Uh, I tell you the truth, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do, if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate, the paraclete, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. For all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, the Spirit is the one who convicts. He convicted you of your sin that you may turn. He transforms your heart so that you may believe. But the Spirit also comes to lead us into all truth. Part of that is guiding the, the apostles as they wrote into writing the Word of God. The God-breathed, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. But ladies and gentlemen, the Spirit didn't end at Revelation 22 when it said amen. The Spirit is at work at the church guiding it into all truth. 
that when air or when others say things, the Spirit comes and says, that's not right. Let's look at it again. You in your conference, you in your council, me with you, and I will guard you, guide you into what is true and right. Write it down. So the next generation doesn't have to go through the same thing that you're going through now. You have it. That's the history and the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we truncate the work of the Spirit only to our own salvation. Only to things around us, you know, uh, power trips with the Spirit. No. The Spirit is at work in His church, in history and today, to help us understand the Word. And part of the way He does that is through the creeds. Why reinvent the wheel? Is basically what He says to them. There you have it. And you, and you see this in the progression through the centuries. Fourth and fifth century, they were dealing with the nature of God, his triune God. How is Christ, how is Jesus in relationship to the Father and to the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit in relationship to the Father and Jesus. Move up, because this is a very simplistic look at it. Move up to the 15th and 16th century. And what do you have in the Reformation? Simply the rediscovery and the return and re-emphasis of cardinal teachings that, was in, that were in the early confessions and that were part of the early church because they came from scriptures. You read John Calvin. Please read John Calvin. He's worth it. He's tough. And all you, what you see him do is, well, Anselm said this and Augustine said this and the Council of Nicaea said this and this. He goes right back to the creeds. And what he has to say. 19th and 20th century was a mission to the world. Great missionary evangelistic outreach. And some of, well, most of us are recipients of that move of the Spirit to get out and to be uh, out there. And creeds were written because of that. Early 20th century, you had a move of the Spirit. And the charismatic Pentecostal movement began. And creeds came out of that. One of my favorite creeds is the Westminster Standards and the Westminster Confession of Faith. One of the most complete statements of our faith. 1903, they had to add a whole section about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was jumping out all over. And they had to deal with it and put it in their confessional statement. We're still dealing with this. The Lausanne Conference comes out with a confession, with creeds, about how you do evangelism throughout the world. Uh, back in the 60s and the 70s, when the fight was over the, the Bible, the battle for the Bible, uh, a group got together in Ligonier Study Center and ironed out a statement about the nature of the Bible. Now, the Bible has been, uh, right, or has been denied throughout the centuries, but this is the issue of our day. From the middle 1800s to, to even this moment. And those kind of statements are statements written by people from the church, not a person. 
that help us to understand what is the scripture. What is and how does the Holy Spirit work? How do we do missions? What is the faith once delivered unto the saints and all of that? So the, the church exists as God's authority to handle and guard the truth. It's our revelation raised through by the Spirit through, through um, scholars and bishops and priests and, and the literary people who were given the specific ministry to do this kind of thing. Why? For you and me. And if we ignore it, we have ignored a great move of the Spirit. So, the other part of that is the church has been given the experience and discernment throughout the ages. Every profession has its language. I pastored at Kirkmont Presbyterian Church for about seven years. It is 60 to 70 percent associated with the base. I mean, we have present and past members of the armed forces, as well as those who work on the base. One day the treasurer early on in my ministry got up and she gave a report and then she said, oh, by the way, if you want to talk to me about that, you'll have to do it next week because I'm on TDY. And I'm going, and I, I blurted this out, what in the world is TDY? Well, if you know the base... That's their professional language for temporary duty. I'm off base. You won't be able to get a hold of me. I didn't know that. I was never given that kind of professional language. The church has professional language. And you need to know it. You think, no, I don't need to know it. Yes, you do. You need to know what the Trinity is. You need to know what the word propitiation means. And why is it different from expiation? And substitutionary atonement. And, and infralapsarianism versus superlapsarianism. Which I've just lost you when I gave those words. Because <laughs> that's not common language. But one of the reasons it's not common language is because we do not know our creeds. And we do not know that which has helped us understand teaching from the past. Thirdly, it's historic. You ever notice that every family has a personality? And it's not a personality that a man and a woman develop when they become married. It's personality that comes from their families and their families after that. And they bring it in and sometimes they don't even realize why they bring it in. I used to talk to uh, young couples for premarital counseling. And again, this dates me. But I used to say to them, how do you squeeze a toothpaste tube? Do you start at the top, the bottom, the middle? And they look at me and go, what, what does that have to do with being married? I said, that's part of your family. They taught you. Well, if you're going to be a good family member, you squeeze from the middle. Or you roll it up from the end. We all have personalities. Congregations have personalities. It comes from their beginning. You've heard of the fighting fundamentalists. And now you know why fundamentalist churches love to fight. At, the, uh, at anything that they disagree with, they throw down their Bibles, take off their gloves and go, come on. <laughs> That's built into the nature of the church. And over the time, that may change a little bit, but you have a certain DNA. 
in a congregation. This congregation has a great DNA. Because when we first came in, you guys, you either were very hungry for new people or you really liked people because you fawned over us and you invited downstairs and you introduced yourself to us and you put up with my not knowing your name for 30 weeks. But that's personality. The church has a personality. And it is built upon the history. It is built upon our traditions. And again, just like institution, tradition is a nasty word because we think of deadness and irrelevance. All oh, those old white men who created this thing way back then. Unfortunately, that's part of our evolutionary thinking. That somehow today is better than it was yesterday. Not so. Things are going to get better and better and get it. We're going to progress. We're going to progress. We're going to progress. And people today are different than the people way back then. Well, let me tell you something. Two things never change. One, three things. God never changes. And out of that, truth is eternal truth. And he has communicated it to us by the Bible, helped to understand by the creeds. And people have not changed. We grieve because of what happened in Florida. Of someone who can get an AK-47 and shoot. That's happened throughout the centuries. Oh, they didn't have AK-47s. They had bows and arrows and could shoot a long way before they ever got to them. Knives. Cannons. Swords. But the sin nature and the human nature never changes. Elijah was a man like us, James would say, because he was. Same weaknesses, same sinfulness, same issues that we face with. That's part of the beauty of, the, of knowing the birth and growth of Christ. He went through every issue that you and I go through. He even went through puberty. No, come on. He was fully man. He went through puberty. And he had to deal with it. But you see, we are always the same throughout all of history. And because of that, we have DNA in the church. Paul echoes this in 2 Thessalonians. I, and I love this verse simply because of where it is. This is not put in Revelation or it's not stuck in the last book of the Bible or it's not stuck in a later book of Paul, his pastoral epistles. But First and Second Thessalonians are probably the first two letters that Paul ever wrote. Around, uh, around 50 A.D., 19, not 1950, that just cut out a lot of history. Around 50 A.D., the cross was probably around 30, 33 A.D. It's only 20 years from the cross. And listen to what he has to say. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brothers, or let's go back, put it in context. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, 
Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. And the traditions is a sense, the gift that God has given to us, those traditions. And then, just to make sure the Thessalonians knew it, he went into the third chapter, and in verse 6, and he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. Now, how much tradition can you get in 20 years? Not a whole lot. But it was enough for Paul to say, traditions are important. Keep them. And the creeds are part of those traditions. Give you a couple examples. In the Reformed movement and Reformed churches at one time, we all stood up for the reading of the Word of God. This was before my time. Before my father's time. Maybe before my grandfather's time. So when John gets up today and he says, let's listen to the Word of God, you all stand up. That's part of the tradition, but we've lost it. Partly because we've lost the honor and the glory of the written word of God. Okay? The pattern of worship. You know, congregations that say, we have no liturgy. I've been to some of those, and in three weeks I can tell you exactly when things are going to be done and what's coming next. Yes, it's not written, but you have a tradition. And if you deviate from that, half the congregation is going to leave and you're going to have to sell your building. Okay? It's tradition. Tradition, we say certain creeds. We say the Nicene Creed here. Tradition can be corrupted. You've sung. You're still standing. Isn't it interesting to stand for the Nicene Creed but we don't stand for the word? Oh, well, that's a different issue. And then we recite the Nicene Creed. I'll tell you what I've noticed. We forget the commas. We run right through the commas. The Nicene Creed was meant to be meditative. That is, you stop at the commas and you think about what you've just said. We've lost silence in the church. Got to have music, got to have talking, got to have this, got to have that. The silence is a time in which we think about what's going on. And that's part of what it is. See, there are traditions that are good. There are traditions that are bad. And that is, you know, just running through Lord's Prayer. Not even thinking about it, meaning it, or doing anything about it. So, what the creeds do is they connect us to the water, wider body of Christ, the church, not only in our own age. When we recite the Nicene Creed, we are joining with the Eastern Orthodox and our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq and in Africa and in Australia and even in Canada. <laughs> we join with all of them in reciting the faith once delivered unto the saints. And we are one body. But it's even more than that. It's age long. These creeds have been repeated 
like the Nicene Creed, for over 1,600 years. Where were you 1,600 years ago? You know, we have a huge history of personality. And this connects us to that personality, our heritage. And it reminds us we are not alone. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, don't stumble. Our forefathers gave us this so that we would remain firm. Last one is enriching. Creeds can increase our praise and worship. Are you kidding me? Creeds increase our praise and worship? We sing and we feel filled with the Spirit. We say the Nicene Creed, and I can't wait till the offering. Now, creeds are meant to teach you the key elements of the faith. And the more you know about the key elements of the faith, the greater your God will be. Because you'll begin to see the greatness of who he is. As one grows in knowledge, one is better able to praise. Wouldn't it be a shame if all of our praise was built upon what we would have learned in, in vacation Bible school and Sunday school? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me, tells me so. And that was the whole understanding of the faith. That's fine. Not very deep. But when you get to understand what the creeds are teaching you, you get a deeper appreciation for the God who has given to you. And that adds into your praise. I hate to say this because I do listen to your prayers Friday night. You can tell how much a person knows by the depths of their prayer. <laughs> You're not going to invite me to Friday night. I can, tell, I can say that. If every other word is Lord or mostly or just... Or, have you spent a lot of time with them? Have you meditated upon them? Have you really worked through what the faith is all about? The, uh, the teaching on this, the scripture on this, is from Romans 11. For 11 chapters, Roman, Paul has been giving us some of the most in-depth teaching about the Christian faith. And when you get eight or 9, 10, and 11, it is really in-depth. We've never really understood parts of it. And then he gets to the end of that section. He's about ready to go into showing gratitude. And this is how it works out when he says, Oh, the depths and riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, that is a confession. That's a, that's a creed of the church he's writing, writing down. But it also expresses the depth of the God he knows because he knows the scriptures and the same thing is true for us when we know our, our creeds, our confessions. They teach us how to glorify God. Again, I mentioned the Westminster Larger Catechism. The Shorter Catechism has the first question this. What is the chief end of man? Great question. Its answer, chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Larger Catechism. 
What is the chief end of man? Great question. Answer one. Chief end of man is to glorify God. Sounds like the first one, right? How could it be larger? And to fully enjoy him forever. That one word explains what, what the Westminster divines were talking about in their confessions and their creeds and their catechisms. How to fully enjoy God. Life abundant. That's what he's looking for. And the creeds help us to glorify God to do that. We have the creeds as a corporate summary of the biblical teaching on the key points of our faith. They're biblical, reliable, historic, and enriching. And without them, we are poorer people. We are poorer followers of Christ. We're really, in a sense, left on our own. But with them, we have the witness of the centuries. People who have guarded the treasure that has been given to us. And with it, we have something to pass on to our next generation and the generation after that. Why would you not want to study the creeds? Why would you not want to turn off that little box, maybe it's a big box, and study the creeds for what they can give? Well, I was going to open it to questions, but we don't have time. The guy talks too long. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for how you move in the church. Not only in our day and age and in this congregation. And even in denominations. But more, Holy Spirit, we are grateful how you have moved throughout the history of the church. To guard and to allow us to guard that rich, abundant, overflowing treasure that you have given to us in our creeds and our confessions and our catechisms. Pray, Lord, we may never ignore that gift, that we may never look upon it in disdain, but we may use it as you have called us to use it reliable witnesses, biblical understanding, historic part of our church, but also enriching our praise and worship for you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do this, to take what has been said, drill it into our heads and into our hearts that we may serve you and the Son and the Father. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.